Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you an interview with someone who has much to share from their own spiritual life and work, and who has been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nouwen and remind each listener that they are a beloved child of God. Now let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I am joined by my good friend Steve Bell. Steve is a songwriter, storyteller, and troubadour for the challenging times we're living in. Since 1989, Steve has produced more than 21 solo CDs, received numerous awards and acknowledgement for the excellence of his work, and he's performed with full symphony orchestras on nine occasions. Home base for Steve is Winnipeg, Canada, but Steve has performed in over 2,000 concerts to more than a half a million people in 15 different countries of the world. Steve can well be described as a purveyor of truth and beauty and a champion of kindness. Through his writing, he aims to encourage Christian faith and thoughtful living inspired by his music. Steve, you're one of my very favorite singer-songwriters. And in these last few days, as I've been preparing to talk with you, I have been immersed in your writing. You're a deep soul with a wealth of thoughtful and profound insights. Listeners, you're in for a treat. This man has so much to share with us. Welcome Steve Bell to Henry Now and Now and Then. It's such an honor. I really appreciate it. This, it. this is fun for me. Well, it's fun for me, too. It's a lot of fun because I know that uh, you've got so much to share. We're hopefully coming to the end of the isolation caused by the pandemic. But how did you as an artist navigate this forced shutdown that COVID brought on us? Well, part, part of it is nice in that, like, like the artist sort of needs that sort of that quiet and that remove to sort of dig into their soul and, and try to unearth what, what wants to come out. So Part of it is, you know, we have, you know, we get um, so committed to so many things and to find yourself so busy that you're not doing your most essential work. So for, uh, I think, a lot of artists, um, besides the anxiety that comes along with the pandemic, there was something nice about, you know what, I don't have to say no to anything because there's nothing on the table. And so you can just sort of be quiet and you can be still and you can sit by a river forever because... There's no work to do. <laughs> and so, so there was something about that has been really nice. But the other part is, and, you know, and I'm a performance artist, like, so I write songs that I want to sing in front of people. And so that part has been hard because I get a lot of energy by being in front of people. Um, so you do all this sort of work of unearthing what it is you want to get out, and then there's no one to share it with live. Mm. Um, and so that's been really hard, you know, and we've... We've, you know, we've we've sort of geared up, and we do all kinds of video work, and we've learned how to be online. But that's a one-way investment. There's no energy coming back. You're emoting to a camera, and you're getting zero back. So it, all the all the all the energy just goes one way. And so that's we just had to. I've had to figure out how to then how do I refuel? I, I found it quite fascinating, you know, in a sense, uh, recognizing the the kind of artist you are because you're a storyteller and a singer-songwriter and they meld so wonderfully together and and for example in going into 
the books that I've been reading, like I, the, the most recent one, uh, Wouldn't You Love to Know, which kind of surrounds the album that you created. Right. It's so full of your storytelling. It's so yeah. full of your encasing what you do in a story. And you're right, as you described to me how you feed off an audience, audiences feed off of you because you tell us stories, because you yep. position your work within a story. Um, yep. Maybe take us back a bit and tell me, how did you get to be what you're doing today? How did you get to be a singer-songwriter? Was that, did you always know that's where you were going, or? Oh, no, no. I, it never even, growing up, it never occurred to me once. I, I mean, I played trumpet. I thought I was going to, um, I thought I was going to work as a trumpeter a little bit and then be a high school band teacher. That was my goal. Oh, wow. um, it never even occurred to me. I mean, I didn't write very much music at the time. Um, you know, in my in my teen years, I mean, I might have written one or two songs. Uh-huh. So and and so I it, it I didn't even think of myself as a songwriter. I was very shy. I didn't think of myself as a storyteller or a performer or, you know, like I could imagine maybe teaching some high school students band. I mean, that was about as much <laughs> as it was. Well, how did this break out in you? Because 21 albums later, my gosh. I'll try not to tell too long of a story, but what happened was I was, I was supposed to go to Brandon University for music education as a trumpet player. And in, and, and in high school, um, they had a great music program there for education. And, and, um, and at the end of high school, I had a bit of a, I, I mean, looking back, I realized I had a bit of a nervous breakdown is what happened of some sort or some kind of a, an emotional collapse. And I just couldn't go straight out of high school into university. And so I decided to take a year off after high school and just just to chill and bum around and just try to catch my breath and uh, before diving into something new. Um, and I ended up that winter joining a, a, a little folk trio band that played the nightclubs. And it took off. Like, it was a little group called Elias, Schritt, and Bell. And it was kind of like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash clone band. <laughs> And within a very short period of time, it was one of the most popular bands in Winnipeg. And I basically ended up never going to school like I was going to. <laughs> I eventually sold my trumpet. Um, I bought a you know a guitar that I liked. And, and then I started what ended up being 10 years in the nightclub scene, trying to make it in sort of the folk pop world. And... Um, I had a really good run at it. I was I was never the lead guy in a and like I was very shy. I would never speak on stage, so I was always a I was always a secondary person in every band I was in, and um, never thought of myself as an upfront person, uh, more of a support musician. Um, but I mean, there's no money in it. And ten years later, I've married with kids and making no money and gone six nights a week and in not really healthy environments. Uh-huh. <laughs> And um, ended up again quite depressed, burnt out. Um, and then one night I had a very profound experience of the presence of God in my, my room one night. I, my wife was asleep next to me, and all of a sudden the room was filled with God, um, Spirit, Jesus, I'm not sure. But, um, it, you know, and this voice said to me, this time of your life is over. There's something else that I have for you to do. Wow. And um, and that was the that was the extent of it. Um, it. I believed it. I believed I had been spoken to, and I th- and I thought as being asked to put my guitar aside that I was done. And so I basically quit music, started looking for work. Um, now I'm 30. I have no employable skills. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my wife went back to teaching full time, and I stayed home with the kids. And that was the winter that 
all the songs that I'm known for now started happening to me. Wow. Um, and, and that's really how I would describe it. Like, I had no vision for what I do. Um, I, had, I, I, I couldn't have believed for a moment that a, a, a Winnipeg folky could make a, you know, a, a career out of singing Christian music, like, or devotion, but not just Christian music, like not the Nashville, but like more the devotional, the kind of the stuff that I'm known for. Yeah. Uh, but the music started just coming and coming. Every time I picked up scriptures, I'd hear a melody. Like it was, it was insane. And all of a sudden, I went from writing one or two songs a decade to writing dozens of songs a year. Um, and they more happened to me than than I made them happen. And out of the blue, an old family friend uh, showed up and said, I think you should do an album. And he, he, he pulled out his checkbook and said, how much would it cost? Wow. And, and, I, and I just pulled a number out of my hat. I said, I don't know, 10 grand. <laughs> and, he wrote me a check, and he wrote me a check for 10 grand, and that's my first album. Oh, wow. Isn't that lovely? Now, what happened out of that, so that album came out, and I had no vision for that. Like, I made 200 copies um, of, like, just on cassettes, and I hoped to sell 100, and then I was going to keep 100 to give away to cousins and uncles and aunties and, you know, people. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, but, the, but it started making its rounds, and I started getting calls from people saying, can you just come and sing at my church? And I'd say, no, like, I'm not a minister. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a failed bar musician. And so I said, no. For about six months, while I'm still trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life, looking for work, and, and um, finally this one pastor, just he would not leave me alone. He said, please come, sing three songs next Sunday night. You don't have to minister. You don't have to preach. You don't have to do an altar call. <laughs> you know, yeah. like nothing needs to happen. He says, sing three songs and walk off the stage, and I'll pay you 200 bucks. That's what he said. <laughs> and I really needed the money. And so... <laughs> And so then I showed up that Sunday night, and I, and I was terrified. I mean, I've been playing bars. I've, I've been, I'm not used to people, like, being quiet uh-huh. and listening intently. Um, you know, in the bars, you always looking for one or two tables that are listening to you, and you play to them all night. Um, but to have, like, 200 people staring at you, and, and, of course, in a Mennonite church, they don't even clap at the end of the song. So <laughs> it's just really awkward. And But um, something happened to me that night, and um, having – like like I said, I, I never spoke in between songs in the clubs, ever. Uh-huh. Uh, but like it involuntarily, and I mean that literally, like it was beyond my control, I started telling stories. Isn't it was unplanned. I My mouth opened and stories started coming out. And then after about five minutes, I'd kind of go, oh, I know where this is heading and I'd play a song, right? And then oh. I'd open my mouth and a story would come out. And after about five minutes, I'd think, oh, I know where this is heading and I'd play a song. And, um, and I, and I, it was almost like an out of body experience or I was like, like my own faculties were taken from me mm-hmm. for that 45 minute set and something happened that I never could have imagined or even hoped for. Wow. And I remember crying all the way home. I didn't know what had really happened to me other than I knew that the, um, the God that had used my grandparents as missionaries in China and my father as a prison chaplain had used me for something that was beyond me and that that was basically the dawning of what I do now isn't that wonderful I'm so glad you told me that story it's it's amazing because I know you as the person that I've gone to so many concerts where you 
half the joy of it isn't just your music it's your storytelling to be quite yeah, honest yeah. it's your contextualizing and you know you're a funny guy you're a charming guy but you're deep as they come it's always a it's always just uh, a rich feast it really is oh, thank you. um and it was interesting for me because i haven't done as much reading around your work as i've been doing over the last i would say week as i was kind of preparing for today and I, I was so touched by mm. the person's thinking behind what's going on. And you realize mm. God has his hand on you, Steve. And and then I also would share with our audience, there's a generosity in you. You have opened doors for many others. You now mm. have a, a, a music studio and label. Uh, you're based in Winnipeg, but I mean... I, I mean, you're impacting the world, really, with the, the mm, yeah. talent that, that you are working with. But you have always had kind of open doors for talents. I guess, you know, that person who gave put 10000 down on the line to start you. My sense is you've started a lot of other people. You've welcomed a lot of people into the arena, you know, and I, and I respect that. Well, you know, but the, for, for me, like, I'm, I'm not doing what I'm doing now because I saw it and went after it. Other people saw it in me. Oh. And other people said, not only do I see it, here's $10,000. Like, you know, yeah. and I could probably spend the, the, the whole rest of this conversation telling you those stories of people that came along and said, I believe you can do this, this, or this, and here are the resources to back it up. Uh-huh. Whether it be you know money resources or connections or you know whatever, I mean there's mm-hmm. there's so many currencies out there that people have to offer, and so I, I think I learned very very early for one that this isn't about me that I'm I'm participating in something bigger than me and and something that has in some ways limit unlimited resources. So therefore, I don't need to hoard them. I don't like, you know, I have a studio here. I don't need to keep it to myself. I offer it like every day. There's somebody else in here that's using my studio. Um, uh, we, you know, we, like, to me, it's just, it's, it's an abundant cosmos and it's an abundant life. And it's, it's not a zero sum game. And there's nothing I give away takes away from anything from me. Um, it just, it's a it's a river <laughs> yeah. that flows from the throne of God, and yeah. there's no reason to hoard it, you know. And I find that, and I'm not. It's not. A, it's not virtue. This is just my experience. I find yeah. that when you're are generous, what what it's not like you get more stuff. It's just that you realize it's it's a river. It's it's not a, a like a, a, a superstore with limited shelf stocking. You know what I found uh, it, it, that I love as well is um, in the midst of what I would say is all this humility that you're offering up right now, you're not the least bit afraid of talent. And you bring to the stage people that you feel are much more talented than you. Oh, gosh, yeah. And I love that. I mean, I just, it's one of the great things that we learn if we work in in media is we learn hire the best people you can find. Hire the people that will make you look better than you you could possibly ever look or be better than you could possibly ever be. Oh, my goodness. You do that. You really bring forward you know, on the stage, people that just are fantastic, talented. Oh no! Oh, for sure. Like, I, like even when I put together bands, I always want to make sure that I'm the weakest link in the band. And I, <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, in a false humility sense. I mean the players like Mike Jansen or Gilles Fournier or, 
know, Joy Landreth or Maury Pulver or any of these people are schooled way deeper. They've got way more um, um, capacity with their instruments. They're deep, rich musicians. And but but what I've learned is it takes nothing away from me. Again, this isn't zero sum game. Um, what ends up happening is I play better. I I I am brought. I'm elevated by their work. Mm. I become a better player. I become a more nuanced musician and communicator. Um, and what I also find a great joy of it is that as much as I've written songs that I hope delight you, I've got these friends that play great, and I hope they delight you too. Like, <laughs> and so when you see when you let Mike Jansen take a 32 bar solo and he just rips it up. And and I'm looking out at, at an audience that's never seen anybody ever play like that, and and their world just got rocked. They 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 don't live in the same universe they lived in 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Um. And that I I just I'm so energized by those moments. Symphony work, doing symphony concerts, and so many of my fans have never been to a symphony orchestra, and they come out and here are 70 people on a stage. Half of them are playing, you know, $250,000 instruments. Uh, this music, in a sense, is like any one of these could do a solo concert and be brilliant. But they all submit to a common score, to a common uh, event that's in, in some ways beneath them. Yeah. Um, but so that a greater thing can happen. Oh. And then to me, that speaks of trinity, that speaks of dynamic dynamism, of, of mutuality that belongs to the heart of God in whose image we've been made. And you sort of realize when you put 70 people on the stage with that kind of commitment to something beyond them, I mean, that's, that's gospel witness, that's foretaste of the kingdom, that, that reflects who God is and whose image we've been made in. And even if you don't, you know, you know drink the Kool-Aid of Christianity, <laughs> you, you, you know it's true. Something true just happened. Something deeply, deeply true, capital T true, not fact true, but but spiritually, um, eternally true just happened. And that you, you watch people swell and grow and, and flourish under that experience. Boy, that's that's worth it for me. That's just wonderful. Yeah, and when we talked a, a little while ago and thought, what would we look at? You know, because there's so much good work to look at. And you had suggested, well, why don't we talk a little bit about Pilgrim Year? And I was mm -hmm. looking at that, and I thought, that's kind of interesting. It's it's an amazing kind of marriage of word and music and experience. Tell us a little bit what was in your mind in creating this, by the way, is a seven-book series. But just tell me about Pilgrim Year, because it's not what I expected to find from what I thought was probably a little evangelical uh, right. singer-songwriter. Right. Okay, so on the, this is true. I mean, I come out of a, what I would probably say um, a, a fairly kindly fundamentalist evangelical background. Like, <laughs> like really good. Like, my dad is a Baptist preacher. Um, I mean, this is just the culture, the, the, the spiritual culture we grew up in. Um, and we had... Uh, and, and, I mean, I, I don't like I, I I wouldn't call I wouldn't put myself in that camp anymore. But um, I it's it's the it's the mother that birthed me and gave me my faith and yeah. um, have deep respect for it and the people that are even still in it um, to some degree. Um, my my mother had a, a terrible, horrible, debilitating um, nervous breakdown when I was about eight years old, and ended up in a mental institution for 
almost a year, and the mom I knew before then never came back. Um, I lost my mom that year, and this other lady came back that I adore, but it was a it was a deep loss. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, for me, without any ability to to account for it, and all of a sudden, sort of the pat answers out of the the, the tradition I grew up with didn't work. Like you couldn't just lob a Bible verse and make the pain go away. Um, and I tried uh, my best, and um, and I couldn't I, I couldn't save my mom. I couldn't I couldn't heal her. Um, God either couldn't or didn't or wouldn't. Um, I you know, and as eight years old, I couldn't figure that out because we're good people. We we don't sin very much. We don't smoke. <laughs> you know, we don't drink. Uh, but you know, like all the whatever you know, your childish views of of what it is that would you know that would make God do your bidding, right? Which is in a sense, what's happening a lot of times in those scenarios. But I, I could either go one way. I could, I could reject the God who rejected us, um, or I could reject the idea in total, or I could think that maybe something else deeper is going on here. And something, I don't know why I opted for door number three. And um, I, I started paying attention to some of the, the, the richer traditions, um, my dad always, um, as a prison chaplain, he worked a lot with the Catholic priests. We, I was often in Catholic um, uh, worship services, and I started noticing things, and I started feeling the depth of the tradition, and that it wasn't, these were, weren't a bunch of little, like, holy hand grenades to, to launch at problems. This was being steeped in a kind of truth that was, had nothing to do with belief or had nothing to do with fact. It was deeper than that, and I could feel it in the liturgy. And then I started noticing the the um, in the, in the with the church the, the Catholic tradition this thing called the liturgical year that that they followed a different sense of time that organized their their thoughts and their lives and their and 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 it started to matter to me. And I just started paying attention, um, but without really much help. Uh, when I got out of high school, I. I I found myself more drawn to Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions than the tradition I grew up in. Um, but it wasn't until my 30s that I actually started going to a church that was a little folky Protestant church, but they did follow the church calendar year um, and as sort of a way of organizing our life together, our, our faith life together. And it started to come together for me. I started to see the beauty of it, the richness of it. Um, so a few years ago, I realized that for a lot of my friends, um, this was this was foreign territory, and I decided to, that I wanted to write a book series on the church calendar year: Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, um, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and Ordinary Time, and and the, and the beauty and the I want to say magic, but let's say enchantment of it, mm-hmm. and um, the, uh, the the sort of sacramental view of time. Um, that that it, that it offers you, um, and it, the, the ability to sort of, in a sense, transcend some of the lesser questions about pain and suffering. That doesn't—I don't mean to diminish them, but um, but that they they belong um, as something deep to something deeper, and and so and discovering the lives of the saints and starting to feel that I have I, I keep company with Francis and Claire and with John of the Cross and with. Julian of Norwich, and realizing that not only is this a tradition I belong to, this, these are the people I'm hanging with. These, these, these are my people. That mm. They're available to me. Um, and I, and I, I, 
I wouldn't want to articulate a, a very specific theology of that. I just sort of feel it in my bones more than anything. And, it, and I just sort of realized that I needed to somehow find language and music to pass this on to people. And so I ended up starting to write this little series um, that started off just as a bunch of blogs. And then someone said to me one time, they said, you know, if you string a bunch of blogs together, you can call it a book. <laughs> 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 and, and I just started to realize that I had been doing this for quite a long time already. And then the right kind of people came around and said, yeah, we can see this happening. Um, and then I started, <laughs> I started actually writing this thing, and I was just going to put it up sort of as, a, as an internet book. And then I got a call from um, Novalis the Catholic um, book company, and they said, we hear you doing this. And, I, and they said, would you do it with us? Can we publish this? And I said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> and, and they said, well, you're more Catholic than most of our writers, so let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> so, and, and they're just such lovely people. I, was, yeah. I mean, this, they, they're, these are not sort of high-powered business folks. These are just <laughs> people that really care love their work and whenever they see something good they just want to be part of it and um and so it was the easiest book it was the easiest intro into the book world that i could ever ask for but there's some sort of marriage in it isn't there in terms of in terms of the music you actually do you go online to sort of participate in the music how 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 are the two married or is it is it an album alongside tell me how you've put those two together Oh, well, when I started writing the different chapters, I realized that over the years I had written songs that would, that would go with them. Mm-hmm. And, and then how do you, then, you know, and, and he, like communicating through the written word is different than communicating through the sung word. And, you know, there's things you can sing, say, that you can't say, say. Like music itself is a language um, that is not translatable to English or German or French or Italian or, or you know, it, it's its own language that doesn't have direct equivalence in other languages. And so, um, and, and, and musicians, you, you know, like you, like you see this when, when, when scholars write and they, they, they want to quote, they're, they're English writers, but they want to quote a German speaking person. And they say, we can't translate this. You have to know the language. And, yeah. and music is kind of like that music knows things that no other language can articulate or know. And I realized that a long time ago. And so I thought, how do we, how do we put the music with the written word here to sort of just deepen the experience? Um, and so we put out, you know, CDs that would go along with the book. But of course, nobody's buying CDs anymore. So we just put them all up on a website. Uh-huh. So as, as you read the book, you know, at the end of a chapter, you know, there'll be a link to, here's a song I wrote or someone else wrote. And you can go to the website and you can listen to it and, and reflect. Well, I, I love hearing the journey of how you've become a contemplative because that's that's kind of evident. And this morning it was funny because this was the daily meditation from Henry Nowen about the contemplative life, and it said the contemplative looks not so much around things but through them into their center. Through their center, he discovers the world of spiritual beauty that is more real, has more density, more mass, more energy and greater intensity than the physical matter. In effect, the beauty of the physical matter is a reflection of its inner content. Well, see, perfect. And, and, and I mean, this is a conversion experience of sorts for me, was reading now in The Whole the Beauty of the Lord. Um, oh. and, and I remember, I mean, I, I, I tried to get into his, 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 his more prosy uh, things, and I'm kind of pretty ADD, and I have a hard time 
with the you know the the long quiet and and all the sorts of things but having that visual having those icons and then reading his reflections and and him sort of curating those icons and helping me see through them to what they were looking at um that th- these were glasses they weren't they weren't they weren't to be gazed upon as the the end point they were the the doorway to something richer deeper truer um more alive um, and I re- is reading that book that I first started to glimmer, what if all of creation is that way? Like, what if every tree, every bug, every star, every human, um, every, every rock um, ha- has at some level that, that capacity to be seen through? Well, that changed my, that changed my world. And then mm-hmm. I read his Prodigal Son and how he sat in front of that painting for days and the things that he saw through that, I, I, I was gobsmacked. Like, can you, can a human being like me learn how to see like that? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so he's full of words like behold, right? I mean, that's a key word, like behold, <laughs> you know? And then you realize as you're beholding, you're also being held. <laughs> yeah. And that this isn't a one-way street. Like this goes both ways. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, like, this changes every moment of every day. It changes how I look at everybody, at everything, how I um, interpret every experience. It's all sacred. It's all, it's all pointing outward and inward at the same time. Um, and it's all mystery, but it's all, it's all knowable, just not necessarily specifically limited to the English language or my set of metaphors, right? So then... Mm. I can imagine an eternity of, of learning new metaphors so I can understand deeper and go, I can, I, can, I can foresee that that would never end. You would never come to the end of the riches that are available as we continue to look and learn how to see and then how to articulate using the many languages that we've been given, whether that's body language or musical language or um, you know, uh, linguistic language. Um, dance language, um, <laughs> you, uh, film language, whatever, right? You know, and and also you realize, oh, like I can, I can, I could hang around for eternity for this. I can see the goodness of that, right? Mm. <laughs> That's an amazing image and, and, and an amazing understanding that you're bringing to it. I I want to talk about this latest album. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you love to know? And. I need to describe it for our our listeners. It's not just an album. It's this incredible book. It's so exquisite. It's beautifully crafted. And it just, in a sense, I think it parallels what we were just talking about. This sense of seeing beauty and seeing through things and and knowing. I've, I've been so touched by it. It slowed me in my tracks just to kind of mm. read word by word your description of each song, where it's come from, where it's going, and then just little moments within it that just took my breath away, to be quite honesty, quite mm. honest. I, I'm going to start here, right at the beginning. You say, and this is about your own faith, and you've talked a bit about this, and I love this quote. I didn't become a baptized follower of Jesus at the tender age of nine because Christianity made sense in my head. Indeed, I still find it somewhat bewildering, but something about the story stirred deeply in the dark fecundity of my soul's longing. 
like a moistened buried seed responding to the warmth of a sun it cannot see or imagine. I haven't come to love God because of what I know, but rather I've come to know God because what I've loved. You caught me with that right at the beginning. And of course, you use one of the favorite noun words, fecundity. I didn't know what fecundity <laughs> meant until I discovered it from Henry. He was always talking about fecundity, fruitfulness. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that was a new word for me. Well, you know, you, you get that from soil, right? Like yeah. rich, deep soil um, uh, is, is needed for fecundity. For for I mean, it's nutrient rich, right? And it's um, it, it holds moisture, and you know, it, it like it's it's a it's a beautiful word. It's a very beautiful word. Um, to use when we like see what happens is that like in, in our rational in our you know sort of a rational or, or post-rational mindset of in modernity we we just haven't we haven't been able to imagine the depths of the christian faith outside of this cold calculus sort of way of thinking about it so you know we'll kill each other over doctrines we'll we'll kill each other we'll destroy each other over uh, uh, you know, sort of different moral commitments or whatever, as if somehow that's the, the secret or the essence of our faith. Um, but if we start thinking, you know, fecund or, or, I mean, the other great analogy to, is the womb, you know, that we've been enwombed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I find it really interesting when, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. Well, that's a maternal image. That's not a that's not a male patriarchal image. If anybody wants to have a discussion, does God have, you know, does God embody or transcend the feminine but include? I mean, the key line is you must be born again. That you must be rewombed. Um, and there's just something about the, the the darkness and the mystery and of what happens in a womb and the deep connectedness between um, the, the the child and the mother and the shared nutrients and and all that kind of stuff that, and, 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 and a child is being prepared for a world it can't imagine, um, that it finds bracing and cold and frightening at first. Um, and then the child is also equipped to do that for someone else, <laughs> um, to bring life to someone else. Um, yeah. You start to really reach into those, those, those metaphors. And suddenly, not that theology is not worth their time. It is worth their time. Not that doctrines don't matter. Of course they matter. But these aren't essential things. Um, there's something far richer, far deeper, far more beautiful, far more mysterious happening there. And my faith, you know, I think what I'm trying to get at with that, what you read there, is that, um, you know, like, I, I grew up being very mindful of this womb-like safety and beauty and warmth and love and security and um, moistness. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I just, I just felt, I felt the goodness of God in a way that I couldn't articulate. And then when I started really, when I, when someone started convinced or telling me sort of basically, well, the face of God is Jesus. And I started looking at those stories of Jesus and I went, this, I recognize this. This, this resonates with how I have always known God since sort of almost pre-language. Um, I, I, I looked no further at that point. I didn't need to. It, it wasn't that I became a Christian over against other faith. Mm-hmm. It's like I just stopped looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. what this resonates. Um, mm-hmm. 
and it doesn't even resonate in a way that obliterates other other worldviews, um, mm. but just one again that can enwomb all of them, right, and and bring them to their deepest selves. And I, I somehow I got that in the in this lovely album. One of the songs is in praise of decay. Mm-hmm. And you struggle to deal with your father's pain. And I was so touched by the encouragement he gave to you. Make yeah. peace. Make He encouraged you to make peace with your powerlessness. And I thought that yeah. was profound. Yeah. Dad Dad was that guy. He, he, <laughs> he had a thousand <laughs> lines like that. And the story behind that line was, uh, this is when in his dying days, and he's he's suffering bitterly with, with, with real with pain and, and indignities. And, and I remember coming to his room one night and he's asleep. And, and as he's sleeping, his body is shuddering with pain. And I'm weeping over my father. And I'm, I'm going to start now. Um, <laughs> and he wakes up and he sees his son struggling, you know. And I just said, Dad, it's just like, like he was a really good man. He was a, he was a legitimately a very good man. Oh. And I said, you deserve better than this. You have lived so well. If anybody deserves a, a glorious exit, it's you. And and I said, this isn't right. It's not fair. That's what came out of me. And that's when he looked at me and said, Steve. <laughs> and then he said, I wish you could hear his tone of voice. Because it's with a smile. He says, go away and make, make your peace with powerlessness. It'll go much better for you. <laughs> and then, and then he said, I'm not scandalized by suffering. And there's there's a pause, and then he said, the most beautiful things have happened to me in this bed. He said, people kiss me that have never kissed me. People say tender things that have never said tender things. He says, people touch me that have never touched me. People share things that wouldn't have otherwise. He said, everything I've wanted most in my life is happening around this bed of suffering. And then he said with a wink, who wouldn't wish this on their best friend? Mm-hmm. And he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't making light of pain or, you know, you know, but he, but I mean, you can hear sort of his deep faith in all that. Right. And it wasn't just, if you just squint your eyes, you, you can get through this to the glory. It was the glory. Wow. Right. Um, this, That's this isn't the passageway to beauty or to salvation or to glory. This is it. Um, in the same way that Henry Nouwen doesn't, like uh, Ronald Rollheiser said about Henry Nouwen's writing one time, he said that the, what the unique genius about Henry Nouwen is he doesn't write about spirituality. His writing is his spirituality. Yeah. It is the thing it's pointing towards. And mm-hmm. and Dad saw suffering um, and glory in the in the same sort of way. It's interesting because when you use the word scandalized, it's a word that I actually associated with Henry. He was not scandalized by the pain or scandalized by the... Mm-hmm by the, the issues of sin. He just wasn't scandalized by it. Mm. But that is the most beautiful description. And it's funny because I'd have to say this beautiful little book to me pivots in a way around In Memoriam, which is a, a song that you wrote for your father after he died yeah. Yeah. in memory. And the other day, I, I had just read it and I I was dealing with a friend who has was going through such, was actually recognizing that pain um, the, grief had yeah. trapped her almost for a lifetime. And right. I read your very, very honest uh, assessment about grief that was so beautifully written. I, I don't know if you want to, I, if you have it before you, I would suggest you read it to us. If not, I've got it here. 
But as yep. you begin that, in memoriam, my father died. If you started there, I it was so wonderful how you captured the truth of this. Okay. So, okay, so this is how I, I begin this chapter. I mean, again, for listeners, basically, with my last album, I, basically, to, to summarize, I wrote a book to go with the, the album. So there's a chapter for every song. So this is the opening of the song um, I wrote for my dad called In Memoriam. My father died of cancer last summer, July 26, 2019. Approaching his death, I thought I knew what grief was and certainly expected it to be a rough ride but it turns out I had no idea. Grief over the death of a beloved one isn't merely a deeper level of sadness or loss than, say, loss of a treasured belonging. It's a different thing altogether. It's a cellular thing. It floods and colors every molecule of your being and significantly alters your perception of everything else. Nothing is the same. Nothing will ever be the same, and neither do you want it to be. A return to sameness would be a denial of the beloved significance. Even now, almost a year later, grief is ever-present like a low hum of a highway in the distance. I, I just found the, your genuine understanding and, and sharing of that so very helpful, so very real. You can't push aside grief. It is its own. It colors life in yeah. its own way. And, and I felt that was wonderfully helpful to my friend i can tell you the song is beautiful the story of how that song came is is amazing do you mind sharing that it's it's quite interesting it's quite i was delighted with it as i read it well a few months after dad died and of course you know when dad died and and um and anybody that knows me know how profound he was in my life and how hard it was but you know we're at a funeral you're dealing with other people's grief you've got all the details and so you don't really you don't get a chance to have your own thing and so after a couple months i said to nance my wife I had to travel to Alberta to do some, um, I had some medical issues that needed looking at with my wrist, um, a specialist there. And I said, is it okay if I just take a couple of extra days and just go grieve my dad? And she said, of course. And so I, I booked a little hotel and I'm out there for a few days and I could, I, lots happened when I was out there, just being quiet. By I, I just drive into the Rocky Mountains and I'd sit by a river and, and cry, you know. Um, <laughs> but on the last night, um, I, I came back and I was heading home the next day and I, I went and got some supper, and I had a, got a bottle of wine. I'm sitting out in my hotel balcony. I'm sort of sipping on this wine, watching the sun go down over the Rocky Mountains. And this, the first line of that song came. Um, and I was thinking about how around my dad's bed, I got to know some of his friends. I got reacquainted with some of my, my relatives that I hadn't seen for a long time. Like, like a lot of things happen around a dying person's deathbed that are lovely, you know. And so this line came to me. Um, Fresh tenderness is burgeoned with the dying of my dad, and I love him all the more for it. And I just realized I was just grateful for all these connections that had happened around my dad's deathbed in his dying days. And so I sat there with that line, and I was thinking, well, that's a line, and you know, that could start a song. And about half an hour later, another line came, you know, um, and then half an hour later, another line came. And over a period of a couple of hours, and I, I would just pick up my phone, and I'd, I'd sort of just write into notes so I wouldn't forget um, I don't even have my guitar there, so it's not like I can sort of see how this is going to work melodically. Within a few hours, and a bottle of wine, um, <laughs> this this whole song comes out that I wasn't trying to write, and by about midnight, it was done. Like I realized, I have a song here that I wasn't even trying to write, and I could save this to something, and I, I think I copied it, and I wanted to send it to myself in an email, 
and I raced it by accident. <gasps> the oh. whole song was gone. Oh. And it's midnight. I'm exhausted emotionally, physically. Um, I've got a, you know, the better part of a bottle of wine in me, so I'm not exactly, <laughs> you know, sharp, right? <laughs> and and I realize that if I don't if I don't now try to remember the song, I'll never get it back the next day. And I ended up till four o'clock in the morning just remembering this word and that word and going, well, that was the end of a line, so what would that have rhymed with? And I had to rebuild the whole song, um, to, to, to just to remember it. And I did. It took hours. And, and I finally got the song back. And what I love about that is that the song came as a total gift, like it was, came unbidden. But I ended up having to and am privileged to having to fight for it mm-hmm. at the same time. And that, mm-hmm. to me, um, was lovely as well, that it came as a gift, but then I had to fight for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, somehow in my, you know, bizarre imagination, that's significant, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, it's quite a, it's kind of kind of a fun story. I like the story, and the the part of me that's um, lived in the world of being a creative person uh, got it. Uh, it mm. met me in, a, in an interesting sort of way, and I could I, I can remember struggles and how important it is to work to get oh what, my goodness what, what's yeah. being given to you. Not everything just floats into your head and <laughs> is is a line that works. But but I love the fact that you worked to keep something such that was such a gift given to you. Yeah, like it was no work and it was the most work I've ever put into a song <laughs> in my life. And in the same in, in, in an eight hour period. Like wow. I like it was just the stupidest thing. But it, it there's something poetically true and beautiful about that as well, right? So yeah. I mean, all of life is gift, you yeah. know, but it's all work all the time, right? And and so it's it's both. I mean, so to me, I mean that, I don't know. It was a t- it was a learning moment or a deepening moment for me, and I'm, I'm it, but it made the song more meaningful as well. You know, you wrote in this little book that goes around. Oh, wouldn't you like to know? You wrote, whenever we find ourselves mesmerized by the work of a great artist or a great soul, we talk mm. of being spellbound. Steve, I'm spellbound by the artistry and the wisdom that I find in the writings of Steve Bell and in the and in this conversation, Steve. It's just a it's a gift to be with you. It really is. And and uh, the thoughtful freshness and realness of, of what you give us is is wonderful. I want people to discover Steve Bell. Uh, yes, he's a great conversationalist. It's fun to talk with Steve Bell. But please go to this website. You'll, we'll give you all the links and discover his music and his creativity and you will be the richer for it. I'm going to entrust the seekers who are listening to the safe hands of Steve Bell. Take a spiritual journey with him. Let him sing to you from the heart of God and the words and the ideas that are fresh and are genuine. He speaks very truthfully. His creations are going to draw you to a, the deep center that we talked about in terms of contemplation, the deep center that is where God dwells. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Steve Bell. For more resources related to today's conversation, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything Steve and I talked about today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, We would be so grateful if you would take time to give us a review or a thumbs up and pass it on to your friends and your companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time.